0: We are kind of concluding our Scandal of Grace series. We've been looking at it the last few weeks. Actually, we've enjoyed it so much, we're going to slightly extend it for two weeks. But this is kind of coming to an end today, the, the genealogy of, uh, of Christ. We're kind of landing in, in very familiar circumstances, um, very familiar story. As we end Matthew chapter 1, the first kind of 17 verses, verse 16, it lands with, and Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Today we're going to be looking at Joseph. And we are so familiar, or to be honest, perhaps over-familiar with this story because from a young age we have been told it again and again and again or a version of it again and again and again through mainly Nativity plays is generally how we've, uh, we've memorized this story or been taught this story. And it is the season Of school nativity plays, we've got ours next week. Not the one that I'm in, the one that uh, we we have to go to. Thankfully, both of our eldest two children are in the same one this year, so we only need to endure it, enjoy it once. Um, That'll be. It's going to be really exciting. I'm looking. I'm looking forward to it. Actually, I got my very first big break in the world of acting and theatre when I landed uh, and I was cast following extensive, difficult auditions in the star role of Joseph in Eldwick First School's year four production. It wasn't a show or a nativity play. It was a production of The Nativity, A Christmas Tale. And I had this—the the key part of Joseph, I remember it well, hush, my dear, go to sleep. You really don't want to wake the sheep. I might have remembered that wrong. I can't remember. I was was only like six at the time. Uh, But what I do remember is thinking, in all seriousness, thinking, I've got the main part. I'm Joseph. And the cow had more lines than me. (laughs) Another time when I was a little bit older, I was Father Christmas once, and I had more lines than Joseph. And I was thinking, Father Christmas gets more lines in the Nativity than Joseph. And, uh, well, I've watched my kids over the last few years in their Christmas nativity scenes. And and to be fair, the school they go to kind of keeps it fairly traditional. There's not all like the weird Disney characters that find their way into some nativity plays. But what has been consistent is that as I've watched it over the last few years, Joseph's role basically seems to be this. (laughs) And he doesn't even say anything. His whole role is to walk around the stage whilst Mary goes, have you got any room at the inn? No. That's literally all he seems to do. Now, to be fair, most school nativity plays don't really tend to fixate too much on the implications and the complexities of the virgin birth for obvious reasons, but we do kind of really essentially seem to have reduced the role of Joseph to kind of chief usher, to move Mary around the stage or around the actual real-life version of it, on the walk next to her on the donkey and and from to Bethlehem. And then actually, even as adults, we kind of then look at it and go, well, his next job is to run back with Mary to the temple when Jesus is 12 to, to find her. Like, usher her to Bethlehem and usher her back to the temple. That seems to pretty much be it. And occasionally at Christmas, we focus on the, Joseph, how did he respond moment to that scandalous moment where she told him he's pregnant. But then after that, we pretty much kind of forget him. And we, therefore... Honestly, I think that we easily miss the significance of Joseph and we easily miss the, the significance of his role in the story and also actually in our story as well. And so we're going to look at Joseph today. When we think of Joseph, we tend to focus on the things he's not. He did not have sex with Mary. He is not the biological father of Jesus. And you're right, he wasn't physically involved in the creation of Jesus, nor is he Jesus's biological father, but he is his real father. Joseph, whilst biologically speaking might not have been the natural father of Jesus, he is his real father. And this, the fact that Joseph is his real father is central to the whole gospel story. And it's actually really pretty crucial for you and I as well. You see, Jesus' identity as the Christ is tied to his identity as the descendant of David. David. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 1 for a moment, verse 1, it talks about Jesus, the son of David. The whole point of this whole genealogy, the whole point of this whole series is to show us that Jesus really does descend from David and is therefore the legitimate heir to the throne of David. Jesus saves us as David's son, the offspring of Abraham, the Christ. And that human identity came to Jesus through adoption. And this is why adoption is right at the heart of the gospel. This is why it's not just an additional nicety. It's okay for some of you, yeah. No, no, no. Adoption sits right at the heart of the gospel. It's why as a church, we're right behind the work of organizations like Home for Good, not just because there's a need in this nation, although there is, but because adoption is gospel. It is the gospel. Without Joseph's adoption of Jesus, we don't get to where we are today. It's all part of God's plan. And Joseph's adoption of Jesus means that Jesus belongs to the house of God. Joseph is not incidental. What he did in stepping into that gap and adopting Jesus as his son changes the course of history for us. And it's through Joseph that Jesus finds his identity as the fulfillment of Old Testament um, promises. It's, It's through Joseph's adoption of Jesus that the hopes and fears of all the years are found in the realization of the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of Israel, Jesus Christ. So Joseph then is really actually quite significant in this story. He probably deserves a few more lines than the cow or Father Christmas or Buzz Lightyear or whoever else gets into modern day nativity stories. And actually also as we read and look at the story of Joseph, we begin to see, wow, the full scope of this big Bible story that we've been exploring over these last few weeks, things begin to fall in place in this big story of God. And so the two main story places where we find the birth narratives of Jesus are Luke, which tends to focus on Mary, and Matthew here, which focuses in on Joseph's perspective. And at one level, after all the absolute rotters and shockers of the genealogy of Christ over the last few weeks, it's really quite nice to see someone like Joseph here, a thoroughly decent man, a model for us. But really, Joseph, is a in many ways, is a picture, at one level, a picture for us of what happens when Jesus comes into your life. Joseph's not just an inspiring figure from the past then. He's a compelling example for the present of what following Jesus actually looks like. And here's the thing. When Jesus comes into your life, it creates problems for you, or it should, because you're suddenly faced with a choice. And there are consequences to that choice. And in the end, only one of those choices leads us to life and the fullness of life. But there is no promise of an easy ride. There's no come to Jesus, all your issues go away. There's no come to Jesus, all the problems go away. In fact, come to Jesus, (laughs) it's just the beginning. But ultimately, it's a journey that leads to the fullness of life, life eternal. There's no guarantee of an easy, great, fun life, but there is a promise of something better. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. So let's have a look at how this plays out in Joseph's life. And we're going to read from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, zone in because we are so familiar with this. We zone out. Oh, oh yeah, when do the wise men get here? Beginning of chapter 2. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Here's a guy who is pretty happy with his lot in life. He's pretty content. He's got a job that he's seemingly reasonably good at. He's got a wife to be. He's engaged. The whole of his life is all stretched out ahead before him. And in a moment, everything gets turned upside down. And we're encouraged every single year, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Well, actually, just do it for a moment. Just just consider for a moment your soon-to-be wife, this life that you've got mapped out, the fairy tale wedding, all of it mapped out before you, the plan that you've got, all that kind of stuff. This wife, soon-to-be wife, who you know you have not slept with, suddenly announces she's pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Now, when modern people read this story and scoff at the ridiculousness of this, what we tend to forget is the fact that virgin, com- like kind of virgin conception has always been ridiculous. The people of Palestine knew how babies were conceived. It was not, a, we wonder how this happened. How could it possibly? They're going, no, this is ridiculous. This is what is implied as we read this text. And so when Mary tells Joseph she is pregnant, his first reaction is not, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. No! It's exactly what all of us would, how all of us would respond. He assumes what we all respond, what we all assume, which is she's either lying or she's delusional. Either way, he wants nothing more to do with it. But because he's a good man, actually, that's one of the myths of Joseph. It never doesn't say he's a good man. He's a good man. He doesn't want to embarrass her. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says he's a just man, a man who is faithful to the law. What it mean? It means it's a man who honors God above everything else. He knows that the consequences of her being pregnant outside of wedlock, the consequences of that is that it convenes, not social convention, who cares about that? It breaks God's holy law. He's a just man who honors God in everything he does before anything else and says, you, in doing this action, in getting pregnant, have broken this covenant before we've even entered into it. And he can't allow that to be because he honors God above everything else. And he's more concerned about what God thinks than anybody else. And so he decides, no, I, I I'll I will step away. But he does it quietly. And then God enters the scene. And when God speaks in a dream to Joseph about, his, about the identity of Jesus, Joseph, like everyone who follows Christ, recognizes the voice of God and he acts. And he trusts God with absolute obedience And in believing God, just think for a moment what Joseph actually does, in believing God, in responding to God, in encountering God and then choosing to act with faith and obedience, he walks away from his earthly reputation. He instinctively cares more about what God says and what God thinks than what anybody else does. And in doing that, he walks away from his earthly reputation. He knows what everyone's going to be saying and thinking for the rest of his days. Here he comes. (laughs) Muggins here. Look at him. He knows that. And yet God spoke. He believed the impossible. And he acted with faith. He's a real great example to us. He's not just a just man. He's a... He's an honourable man. He's got incredible self-restraint and self-denial. Verse 25 says he didn't know Mary, he didn't have sex with her, until after the birth of Jesus. Not only did he had to wait like a year in betrothal, which would have been the time, but then he had to wait virtually another year again. Following Jesus, Joseph gives us his example, following Jesus means denying yourself some things that you might otherwise enjoy. Honouring God above everything else by submitting to the will of God above everything else means that you're going to have to at some point most likely not necessarily but most likely deny yourself some of the things that if you did go i'll do it my way thank you we'll get there and we see the story a bit further on as we get into the next bit of matthew chapter 2 the wise men turn up and they find out first of all about jesus from herod who's the king who's not very happy because the king is about to be born and and so he says go and visit them and they visit jesus and they give him gifts and then verse 12 of chapter 1 we're told being warned of uh, chapter 2 being warned in a dream not to return to Herod they departed to their own country by another way and then Joseph having already walked away from his earthly reputation now the stakes get higher again as we read in verse 13 of chapter 2 now when they had departed behold an angel of the lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said rise take the child and his mother and flee to egypt and remain there until i tell you for herod is about to search for the child to destroy him then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archulus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. First of all, he walks away from his earthly reputation. Then God speaks again, interrupts his life plans again, and he ends up fleeing to Egypt, and he now walks away from economic stability. He walks away from a career, he walks away from a job, he walks away from economic stability that actually would have been handed down most likely from his father and he surrenders it or he says, God, you've spoken, I'll go. He's a fantastic example to us in many ways on one level. That's who Joseph is a great model for us, a model of what righteous living looks like. He's a a model of what obedience looks like. He's a model of what trusting God looks like, even when, especially when, it looks like an interruption to your life. Because most of us are very good at obeying God when God happens to agree with everything we want to do. Where we find it a little bit more difficult is when my life is heading this way and God breaks in and we end up sending us that way. And we're (laughs) like, I don't want to do it. And Joseph is a model for us of faithful, humble obedience and he's a model of genuine faith, faith that acts. See, James, the book of James is written by who? The brother of Jesus. Who was Jesus' father? Joseph. Who was James's father? Joseph. And James talks about faith without works is dead. And he says, what does real faith look like? Well, it's faith that acts. It's faith that works. It's faith that looks like widows and orphans. And you just got to think, James is right. that. was he looking at an example of his earthly father, Joseph, who he knows had done that? says, this is what it is to be a man, a woman of God. He's an incredible example to us. Wow, end the sermon there. We'll all be like Joseph. Let's go. Here's the thing. There's something much bigger going on here. And you knew that was coming. See, all of the Old Testament, all of the stories that we've looked at in this series, the whole genealogy of Christ, it's all going one way. It's all pointing to Jesus. And here in this story, finally, we get to the arrival of Jesus. And this story of Jesus being born, of Joseph stepping in, of of raising him as his own child, don't forget Jesus would have said, Abba, Father, the first of all, to Joseph. He really was his dad. All of this story is really a fulfillment of what has come before. You see, whether Joseph realizes it or not, he finds himself in a story that has been acted out before. Matthew's version of the Christmas story tells us that King Herod learns about the birth of the royal son of David from the wise men and in verse 3 he says he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him so he gathers all the scribes and all the scholars and he and he goes through all the ancient scrolls that foretell the birth of the king of the Jews not so that he can submit to this new king but instead so that he could find a way of stopping him you see Herod's understood the implications of the arrival of the promised anointed one. He understood that as soon as this king arrives, every knee will bow and that Herod's kingly earthy rule would have to come to an end. He understood, for he knew the scriptures that the son of David will receive, according to the promises of God, a kingdom under which all of his enemies would be crushed. Herod knows that and he knows the implications of that. He knows when Jesus comes, oh i got a choice. I bow the knee or I do it my own way. And Herod tries to protect his own position. And he orders all the male children under two in the region of Bethlehem to be executed. And Herod probably didn't realize this. And this is now where, if you've zoned out for a moment, you need to zone back in. Because this now starts to get, it's not complicated, but I'm talking about two different Josephs. And you're going to get very confused. I thought we were talking about this Joseph when we start talking about a different one in a moment. But Herod didn't re, probably didn't realize this, but he was doing exactly the same as Pharaoh had done thousands of years before. You see, way back in Genesis, the people of God find themselves in Egypt. And this is really significant because look at Matthew 2 verse 15. All of this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew here is quoting from the prophet Hosea in Hosea chapter 2 verse 15. And he's quoting out of Egypt I called my son because we have seen this story before. The people of God find themselves in Egypt because of the actions of the brothers. Joseph and Technicolor Dreamcoat and all that guy. All right, that whole story, they take Joseph, they try to kill him, they decide not to kill him, they put him into slavery as an act of violence and then an act of evil. But what they intended for evil, God tells us in Genesis 50 verse 21, God meant it for good. And the very next verse of Genesis chapter 50 Verse 22 says, Joseph of old tells his brothers, I will provide for you and your little ones. Joseph of old, I will provide for you and your little ones. And we see a fulfillment of that promise in this story when Joseph of Nazareth pictures his namesake in providing and protecting for Jesus, the little one, in Egypt. This Egypt thing is really very significant because what man intended for evil, that's the reason they had to flee to Egypt, God meant for good. For out of Egypt will come deliverance. And we see at the beginning of the book of Exodus, Joseph of old dies and the people of God are now in Egypt in captivity. And in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, we see Pharaoh seeing that his power and seeing that his authority is threatened by the offspring of Abraham. He says this in verse 7 of Exodus 1. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Where have we heard that language before? Fruitful, multiplied, and they grew so that their offspring, the land was filled filled with them and pharaoh decides that he cannot allow this to happen and so what he does is try to remove the threat first of all by oppression and then by the murder of infants that language of exodus 1 is exactly the same of where else have we seen it in genesis chapter 1 where God speaks to humans, says, speaks to man and says, be fruitful and multiply. It's exactly the same language that God speaks to Abraham in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 when he promises to bless Abraham and multiply his offspring to be as numerous as the stars. Where's all this going? Here's what, this, this is where this lands for us. It's because what God pronounces and declares as a blessing, Pharaoh sees as a curse. What God says is a blessing man, Pharaoh, so often looks at as a curse. You see, Pharaoh is worshipping himself as a god. It's all about my empire, my kingdom, my rules. I'm in charge. I submit to no one except my own authority, says Pharaoh. And the multiplication of God's people is a threat to the power of this god, the god of self. And so he curses the people. He curses the children, and he tries to get rid of them. And years later in the story we've just looked at, Herod is another pharaoh. The blessing of all blessings, the coming of Jesus Christ, is seen by Herod in purely personal terms. See, if there's an occupant on the throne of David, if there's one who sits on the throne, if there's a king who sits there on the throne of David, it would mean, and Herod knew this, it would mean that he could no longer be king of the Jews and he wasn't prepared to give up his selfish crown. He wasn't prepared to submit or to surrender to the true king. He was in charge of his own kingdom, thank you very much. And he was not going to submit to another. And so he lashed out in murderous rage. Exactly the same as Pharaoh did. Exactly the same as Herod did. They lashed out in murderous rage and killed a whole load of children. And it's really easy for us to shake our head in disgust, quite rightly, at, at Pharaoh and Herod's actions. But the reality is, at root, all they were doing is merely refusing to bow to the knee of Jesus' kingly rule. They refused to submit to God's authority. Instead, choosing to declare their own rule, to declare their own reign over their own lives. And at the same time, they are declaring and making the statement that what God says is a blessing is actually a curse. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. Like, none of us orders... The mass execution of every two-year-old in the city. But we do this all the time, whether it's with our kids, whether it's with our spouses, whether it's those in authority over us, whether it's those in relationship with you somehow. I did it this weekend. Like, honestly, instead of having a Christ-like view of my kids, I had a Pharaoh-like view of my children. What God calls blessing, we often grumble as a curse. And for the same reason those kings of old did, because they disrupt our plans. They disrupt our desires, they disrupt what we want to do. My kingdom might be smaller than Pharaoh's, I have less pyramids and less gold and less weird cat things, but my kingdom is still there in exactly the same way as him. Just this weekend, knowing that I'm preaching on this very issue, my noisy and frustrating kids caused disruption to my plans and what God calls a blessing, I call a curse. my attitude and my thoughts, what are you doing? I'm trying to prepare for a talk on the blessing of God. (laughs) And you, you hypocrite, what are you doing? Here's the thing, whether it's with kids or it's someone else, what God says is a blessing, it's so easy to quickly grumble as a curse. And it's easy to lash out against it, not in murder, but in anger that is the root of murder. Why do we get angry? Because we don't get what we want. If I always got what I want, I'd never get angry about anything, because everything would be great. Because I always get exactly what I want. I get angry, I get frustrated, I start to grumble and declare things as a curse. I wouldn't necessarily use, I don't curse my children, so worrying about it. But I grumble about them. Well, God's said as a blessing, we often grumble as a curse because they interrupt where we want to go. And on a far bigger scale. The refusal to bow the knee and surrender to the kingly rule of Jesus is merely a rebellion of our hearts because we want to be in charge of our own kingdom. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I'll decide. Listen, I actually have a great amount of respect for people who choose not to follow Jesus because they understand that following Jesus means surrendering control of your life. I think they're wrong, and I think eternally that's going to cause a problem for them. But I I respect you. You've worked this out. It's not just Jesus my saviour, thank you very much. It's also Jesus my lord and actually I want to be in control of my own kingdom. We don't want to submit. We're so quick, saviour, yeah. Surrender? Sorry, what? Hmm. There's no salvation without surrender. There's no salvation without surrender. And Psalm 2 asks, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Well, they do it because they don't want the interruption of a king to their plans and their purposes. Both Herod and Pharaoh rage. Pharaoh's rage is against the people of God. God knows ultimately that it's from these people in the fullness of time from whom he would bring forth Christ to the world. And he knows that if Pharaoh exterminates this group, the consequences would be massive. None of us would be sitting here if Pharaoh succeeded in exterminating the people of God. And Herod also, likewise, he knew the prophecies about the Messiah, and he chose the same path, destruction for his own self-preservation. And this is the big picture of what Jesus is born into, not some sweet, snowy winter wonderland where everything is wonderful and cozy and rosy. No, 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 he's born and laid in a feeding trough in a war zone, and so are you and I is the world in which we're born into and when we step back for that for a moment and we look at this big picture of scripture we see that ever since the fall this has always been the way it has been and it always will be until Jesus ultimately returns to wrap all of this up because there is something much bigger going on here that we see it's something behind the scenes if you like And Ephesians 2 verse 2 gives us a clue about that it says the course of this world is driven along by the prince of power of the air and the book of Revelation gives us an example of what's actually going on. People get all freaked out by the book of Revelation. It's because it's apocalyptic literature, and we don't have that. We have history, and we have languages, and we have poetry, and we get songs, and we don't understand that. But we don't letters. But we don't have ap, uh, that word literature so much in in our in our world anymore. And so we don't get it, and we think it's all about weird mystic prophecy of the future and all this kind of stuff. Well. Hmm. Actually, really, Revelation is just like peeling back, tearing back the curtain to what's going on behind the scenes. If you imagine at the theatre for a moment, what you watch on the stage is not all that's going on. It's what you see, but behind the stage, there's the mechanics of everything, moving the scenery in place and all of that kind of stuff. And Revelation is exactly like that. It's like peeling back the reality of what we see to see what's going on behind us. And Revelation tells us the story behind the story. And it shows us in Revelation 12, it's the picture of a woman giving birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, Revelation 12, verse five. And crouching before this woman's birth canal is a dragon, the serpent of old, who seeks to devour the baby, we're told. And then that dragon in Revelation 12, 17 became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and has done so ever since. Where are we going with this? The reality is we have an enemy who wants to steal and he wants to destroy, he wants to bind us in captivity, he does not want us to know freedom and he is raging against the people of God. Our weapons, the battle that we battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers. We don't have a physical enemy in the same way of Pharaoh and Herod actually physically trying to destroy and cause destruction and death. But the reality of an enemy and the conflict we're in is no less real. It's a spiritual one. And Herod, this new Pharaoh, tried to kill the firstborn Jesus. And in his rage and in his frustration, he slaughtered other innocent firstborns in, in Bethlehem. But he failed to kill the Savior just as Pharaoh had failed ultimately to kill Moses. Because way back in that story, Moses brought the children out of Israel, out of the land of bondage and death, and Moses' ultimate successor, Jesus Christ, brings us ultimately out of a worse bondage and a worse death, the death of sin. Jesus ultimately is the successor of Moses. He came to save his people from their sin, and we see that ultimately when he goes to the cross, how he wins that freedom for us, that life for us. And Jesus then, in this fulfillment, as he comes, he's coming to usher in a new exodus, a new exodus. A new delivery of his people from slavery, from captive, captivity into the freedom of the promised land. Just as Moses ultimately led the people out of slavery into the promised land, into the freedom, away from slavery. So Jesus comes away and brings us out of, has made a way to bring us out of slavery, out of captivity, out of bondage into freedom, into joy. And the arrival of Jesus then makes a way for us to know true freedom, to know true joy, but also confronts us with a choice there is a new king on the throne now and he makes a claim on our lives and this claim is not be better do better work harder be more like joseph and you'll get it all sorted out no no no. the the claim he makes on our lives is be mine that's what he wants for you be mine submit yourself surrender yourself to me, the fullness of all of your life, surrender it all to me, submit, be mine. And we hate those words, submit and surrender in our culture, because they're just, I don't want to do that. But they're actually life-giving words, because they're spoken by a God who is good, who is for us, and who wants all areas of our lives. And when we surrender all areas of our lives, when we recognize and bow the knee and surrender him, he comes and he fills us with the fullness of himself. You see, Joseph ultimately gets to be with Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. And this whole unsavory story of Herod's activity in is, is a reminder of how deeply opposition to Jesus can be rooted in the hearts of people who are not allowed, who do not allow the gentle rule of Christ into their lives. And if we're determined to get our own way at all costs, then we go to any length to eliminate all trace of Jesus and all claim of him on our lives. But when we respond to God's call, like Joseph, we get something truly amazing. We get Jesus We get God with us. We get Emmanuel. You see, he did not stay as a baby, but he grew up. He lived the perfect life we couldn't live, and he died the perfect death that we deserve to live in order that we might be saved from our sins and in order that we might be released from captivity, in order that we might be released into freedom and the joy of the promised land, in order that we might know forgiveness and redemption and hope and joy. And so now we surrender it all before him and say, Lord, Come have your way in me. Come take me, my life. It's all yours for your glory. And I trust that you're a good God who has good things for me.